All right, welcome to Talks for Earth at the Apple Store Soho in New York. Please welcome this evening's moderator, World Wildlife Fund Vice President of Media, Steve Ertel. Thank you. Uh, uh, thanks everyone for coming. Uh, just last week, we launched uh, Apps for Earth with Apple. Uh, and uh, I'm 27 participating apps, uh, and we are beyond thrilled uh, with the reception. Um, the, the amount of uh, attention that this campaign has already received has been tremendous, uh, and we're really excited about all the opportunities it's presenting for WWF. Uh, today, we have the pleasure of hearing from one of my favorite colleagues, uh, Nalanga Jayasingha. She leads our uh, Asian species conservation work. First, we're gonna show a quick uh, video um, uh, which is uh, just meant to give you a little overview of some of the work that WF does. Without further ado, uh, Nalanga Jayasingha. Hi, everybody. Thank you for being here. Uh, so uh, we thought we'd sort of kick it off today um, by just uh, learning a little bit more about you, Nalanga. Um, so uh, maybe tell us a little bit about sort of where you're from and uh, maybe how you came into this, this line of work. Sure. So um, I'm from a little country in Asia called Sri Lanka. Uh, it's, if you look at the map, it's uh, right below the southern tip of India. And um, I grew up there. It's roughly the size of West Virginia, if you're looking at size, uh, with about 21 million people. So there's a lot of people, but we also have a lot of wildlife. And um, I kind of grew up uh, seeing elephants most of my life. I'm an elephant girl, I'm from an elephant family, we're all big fans. Um, with that, I think it um, helped me develop a very, very deep love for elephants and other wildlife that uh, call my country home as well. So I have always been a big uh, fan of wildlife and it's a pleasure for me to be working on their conservation right now. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about what you're doing at WWF um, specifically. 
So um, Steve mentioned earlier that I work on Asian species conservation. Uh, we work in about 15 countries in Asia, every, all the way from Russia to Pakistan and even further uh, west of there. Um, we work on a number of flagship species, what we call the large charismatic species that are found in these countries, um, like tigers, uh, rhinos, elephants, snow leopards, uh, orangutans, um, and other large species. The reason why we focus on these charismatic species is that because they need very large uh, spaces to live in very large landscapes and areas. And when you focus on protecting those uh, habitats um, for those species, you're ensuring that you're protecting a, a large tract of land and habitat for the smaller guys that live alongside them. So that's why we take this uh, flagship species approach to species conservation as well. So I work with field teams on the ground that do the actual on-the-ground conservation work. So I provide support in a number of different ways, help them improve their programs on the ground, help uh, provide other kinds of support to them. Um, and I travel to the field a lot to work with these teams on various issues. So uh, that's pretty much the gist of my job, I'd say. Can you talk a little bit about something that you've done recently? Absolutely. So um, in early March, I was in Nepal uh, participating in a rhino translocation. Um, so the reason that we move rhinos is because, um, an important thing I should mention, this is a greater one-horned rhino. Um, this species is one of the greatest success stories for large mammals in Asia. It is the only species that was downlisted from the IUCN list of red list of endangered species from endangered to threatened. There were only about 100 around the turn of the 20th century. Now there are 3,500 in these places. And that's a testament to governments taking initiative and moving these conservation efforts forward, along with partners like WWF and other groups that came together to further conservation of, of these uh, magnificent beasts. Um, so some of the things that we do um, is we, uh, in addition to protecting rhinos to, to keep them from being poached for their horns, we protect their habitat, but we also move rhinos around because if there are a number of rhinos in one place and there are too many, uh, they, there's a risk of disease spreading. There's a risk that they will stop breeding as efficiently because there's a lack of resources. So what we do is we move them around to places where they were historically found. And when you do that, they boost up their breeding rates and then populations expand. So as part of this effort, I wanted to show a couple of pictures of what happened. So to catch a rhino, uh, this was, we moved rhino, five rhinos from Chitwan National Park to Bardia National Park in the Terai Arc landscape of Nepal, which is in southern Nepal. So to move a rhino, you have to use an elephant a captive elephant because this terrain is really harsh. And uh, once you actually see the rhino, the elephants will surround it in a large circle. And then the technician with the dart gun with the tranquilizer in it will go in closer to the elephant and shoot the elephant. And then we take all of these measurements, uh, medical examinations, take their blood, measure them, and put a satellite collar on because we want to make sure we know exactly where they are after we capture them and move them. So to know that they're safe and doing well. So after you capture it, you put it onto a sled type thing, and you take it to um, a crate, which is then loaded onto a truck. And then it is driven over 10 hours to Bardia National Park overnight, so the rhinos uh, don't get overheated. It's much cooler at night. So and this is their new home in Bardia National Park, Babai Valley. 
And this is a beautiful place where they used to exist a while ago. And so we're bringing them back to this landscape. So we moved five rhinos here. And the next picture I wanted to talk about is I was witness to two rhinos being released that particular day. This was the first rhino that came out of this crate. And it was a female. And she was a little bit more docile. She was a little reluctant to come out. She had to be encouraged. So she backed out, turned around, and just trotted off very calmly. And the next one I want to actually show a comparison this was the male that we transported that same day and released, and he was not happy. He was pretty angry, as you'll see. He was coming out, and he was kind of ready to take anyone out when he came out. So I'll let you enjoy the video for a second. We moved two rhinos in India as well from Kaziranga National Park that has the largest number of rhinos um, in the world, largest number of greater one-horned rhinos in the world, about 2,400 there right now. So we moved two of them to another part uh, about two hours from there called Lakua Burachapuri Wildlife Sanctuary, which used to also have rhinos. And now they have these brand new mother and daughter duo that were transported to uh, their new home. And the next picture I want to show is what we're aiming for. This baby was born in December of 2015. So brand new baby, this is our goal. This is what we want to see through translocations, wild births, increasing populations, and success for the future of this species. That's amazing. Um, uh, I know that we've also had some, uh, so that's good news for conservation, good news for Asian species. Um, recently, we've also had some good news for another uh, charismatic Asian animal, uh, tigers. Um, so la just last week, actually, WF was part of a global announcement um, that for the first time in 100 years, uh, global tiger uh, numbers are up, uh, slightly up, just a, a, a slight uptick. Um, but it is a real sign of hope after 100 years of constant decline um, that, we, that our strategies are working uh, and that uh, we can do more. So maybe talk a little bit more about what's happening with tigers and, sure. and the good news there. Sure. So for the first time in 100 years, as Steve mentioned, we have reversed that declining trend based on these numbers that you're seeing. We're now at, at in 2010, we recorded, had a, rec a global number of 3,200 recorded. And based on all the counts that we have right now, we are at 3,890. We still have a long way to go because there's much to be done and they continue to face the threats that they've always faced. Those have not ceased. Uh, but I think we need to, it would be good to, to stop for a moment and celebrate the fact that because conservation rarely has, you know, really uplifting good stories because, you know, we are always uh, fighting to save these species against a large number of odds. And so this is, I think it's a great opportunity in a moment to, to kind of stop and, and appreciate the fact that we have been able to come together as a whole and really move tiger conservation forward. So this is a quick glimpse of what, uh, where, which countries have done their official surveys, which ones um, have yet to do their surveys, and where we feel surveys are needed and tiger numbers might be declining a little bit. So we're working from a very holistic kind of perspective on tiger conservation. 
Uh, so you, you talked about uh, several of the threats that tigers face. Um, maybe if you can go into a little more detail about um, you know, one of the threats that you've been working on specifically with sure. four tigers. Sure, so tigers face numerous threats, as you can see from the slide. Poaching is number one. So that's a huge threat. And there's habitat loss. And that also means that populations are isolated. There's fragmentation. So that's another issue. Infrastructure is becoming another big issue that's hab like fragmenting habitat. They're going through often um, then through the uh, through protect sensitive protected areas and impacting tigers and prey species and other species that live in those same habitats. And something I'm going to talk a little bit more about is human wildlife conflict. So when wildlife and humans meet, often those interactions are negative. Um, so we can also look at this as a consequence of um, conservation success because when you're expanding tiger numbers, they're going to move out of their protected areas and into um, human-dominated lands as they're trying to find, establish new territories and get to different you know, areas where they can uh, make a life for their own. So during those instances, they're going to encounter people, they're going to attack livestock, they're going to attack people. Like in this case, this is actually taken in um, Assam, India, again, in our Kaziranga Karbiang long landscape. This is right outside Kazaranga National Park, where a lot of wildlife move out of the park during monsoon season because the park gets flooded. And they move into the adjacent hills that you see in the back, the Karbiyonglong Hills, to get away from the floods. And along the way, you find people. They're all, you know, through in the middle, everywhere, so they have to kind of run the gauntlet of, you know, a lot of people, villages, communities, and then this kind of um, situation happens. So we are working to kind of prevent and mitigate that kind of uh, interaction as well. Uh, so maybe we'll, we'll circle back a little bit to the beginning where you talked about um, your passion for elephants and how that um, kind of drove you into conservation and working with wildlife. Um, talk a little bit about elephants and, and the, the situations that occur when humans and elephants uh, meet uh, and what are the different uh, strategies that we're using to, to um, address that. Absolutely. So many of many people are actually not even aware that there is a uh, that that asian elephants are actually there are far fewer asian elephants than there are african elephants there are about 350,000 african elephants there are less than 50,000 african um, asian elephants in the wild and they're in a lot of trouble because um the habitat that they live in, they're losing it every day. In Asia, there's you know large-scale habitat loss, as I mentioned earlier, encroachment, uh, uh, large numbers of villages and populations, you know, people that live adjacent to them. And often they interact in a very negative manner with each other. Elephants sometimes come out looking for food when they don't have enough in the areas that they live in. You can't contain them to protected areas. They need really wide tracts of land to live in. So when they come out, they often encounter people again. They're going through paddy fields here like this and causing lots of damage, impacting people's livelihoods. Poor communities that harvest rice often are the poorest of the poor. This could be a year's worth of income that they lose. And the next picture is a little bit, you know, I want to give you a little bit of a warning. It's a little graphic. This is an elephant that has been killed in retaliation. Um, sorry to be showing it, but it's the reality of what they face every day uh, as they're trying to make a living. So then I want to give a little bit of context back to, in, into one of the areas where we do work on human-elephant conflict, which is in Assam, again, which I mentioned earlier, in northeastern India. So the famous Assam tea that you may um, enjoy, daily kappa, that you might like to have, um, comes from Assam and from these tea gardens. And so uh, next to tea gardens often are paddy fields, cultivation that people use to harvest their you know, uh, produce. Um, and the, the elephants go into the paddy fields at night and raid the crops. 
So it's a, it's a problem for a lot of different people, both the tea gardens themselves, the people who work in the tea gardens, the, the farmers in the adjacent fields as well, and for the elephants also. So there are some things we do to help out in this area. And one of the things we do is we provide the deterrence to drive elephants away. Flashlights, powerful lights, noisemakers, things like that to kind of scare the elephants away from human inhabited areas. Um, then we use um, electric fencing, um, which actually, if maintained very well, is the most effective tool we've found so far to really keep elephants out of away from people. So this is another interesting thing we do in Assam. We use trained elephants to drive wild elephants away from mostly tea garden areas where they're, they're hanging out. You bring the trained elephants in and you guide the wild elephants away from, from that area into away from people and away from um, inhabited areas. And then um, we also use response teams. We call them anti-depredation squads there in Assam, but these are response teams from villages. These are volunteers from villages who come together and we train them in everything from elephant ecology, what to do, what not to do if they see an elephant, and how to safely drive them away. So what's really cool right now is because everyone has a cell phone, they're all connected. So ADS teams from one village is connected to the team in the next village. So if, you, if the elephants come and the team is able to drive them where they're going towards the next village, they call the guys in the next village and be like, get ready, they're coming your way. So they're gonna get ready and be ready to respond in time. So it's been really effective at keeping elephants from getting into uh, to, uh, crop fields and to, to homes and things like that, and also keeping the elephants safe. So it's a plus plus for both people and elephants. And I think here I want to talk a little bit about how we're using technology as uh, a tool to help uh, prevent things like human-wildlife conflict. We, we're trying to use technology for a lot of different things these days, looking at eDNA to assess population numbers, looking at using um, camera trap technology to find poachers before they get into national parks and protected areas. And this is something we're trying with human-elephant conflict, for instance. It's a, um, this is what you're seeing here is a very basic first stage prototype uh, that we wanted to test out. But the idea is it will be a variable seismic detector that would detect the waves of an elephant's footstep way before it gets to a, a crop area and set off an alarm so that response teams can come and drive them away way before they get there. Because by the time they get there, it's already too late. So it's low cost, it's scalable, so that's the idea. So we tested this in Assam. We, used, we, did, we did a couple of um, controlled experiments. The first was with one elephant, the second one was with two elephants, and the third was with eight. And this was the instance when we recorded eight elephants walking towards the device to see if it would record data. So this was from over 100 meters away, and it was recording everything uh, in terms of uh, recording footsteps and all of that stuff. And all of a sudden, we see these pigs walking by in front. It was a really random moment. And um, yeah, as you can see, I was amused. Um, and uh, But it, it could be what happens in the wild, too. There could be other animals walking in front. So it was a good moment to really test out how it was recording the data. And then we had all of these um, guys. These are park elephants, by the way, park patrol elephants that were used to, to do this experiment. Um, and uh, so it was, it was pretty cool. We have the data now. We're working to improve that, uh, the tool, and actually do the testing by actually burying it eventually the next stage to see how that would work out. And this is me with my eight test subjects. Um, and they were wonderful. 
Um, and this tool can actually be used for, not only this purpose, can be used for other purposes as well. So which is why I think it's really cool. Technology can be used for a number of different things. So one thing is um, elephants are also, they are the victims of railway collisions in places like Assam and West Bengal, you know, because sometimes railway lines go through sensitive areas, they're trying to cross from one place to another and they get hit. There are instances where whole herds have been killed by trains. So we are hoping something like this can help prevent railway collisions by detecting them before they get to the line and then having somebody respond and drive them away. Um, also, you can prevent highway collisions potentially. This is also in Kaziranga where there's a national highway that uh, runs alongside the edge of the park. And on the other side are the Karbiang Long Hills that they have to move to when it floods. So this is a very significant migration pathway that you can see from this way all the way they've all created this roadway that they've been using for a long time but there's a road in the middle so maybe something like this can also help prevent that kind of collision and also the other thing is we can help uh, protect rhinos this way too because if there are rhinos attempting to leave the park the boundaries of the park for whatever reason we can make sure that they're detected to keep them from being poached and also to reduce instances of human rhino conflict so the the, the I, ideally, we're hoping that this tool can be used for a lot of different things, and we just need to continue testing it and see how it works out. If successful, we'd like to scale it up in other landscapes where we work as well and see if it works in other areas also. So thank you so much for sharing about um, the work you're doing with WWF uh, in Asia. Um, and I think we can open it up now for uh, any questions from folks in the audience. Is, there, uh, is it appropriate that we might also add to the toolbox that we could reimburse people to mollify to a certain extent, not always, but to use that also to kind of scale down the negativity about them? Because I know that they get quite angry and upset about it, and you want people to begin to see one another as everybody needed. You know, the elephants is needed and not just negative. Yeah. So, for instance, in India, um, under their Wildlife Act, elephants are a Schedule One species, which is highly protected. You know, it's illegal to kill them, all of that. So under that, they have something called Project Elephant that has funds that can be used. Uh, they're called excretia funds that can be used uh, in a way to uh, sort of provide recompense for people who may have lost their lively livelihoods, sometimes lives as well. Um, however, sometimes it takes a while for the process to be, you know, uh, to, to make those payments, etc. So we work, that's why we work very closely with, it's working with communities is a really, really big part of what we do. We need to have those very close relationships with those communities to be able to help them and for them to be able to help the elephants in turn. So we work on a lot of awareness activities. We make sure people are aware what to do, what not to do. Sometimes people, um, without knowing, may do things that um, put them in harm's way. So we work on uh, a number of different components that way. So it's not just the tools that we use to prevent conflict, but we try to work to, to kind of engage in a more holistic way there as well, because there is a human component to human wildlife conflict. Without one, you can't do the other. So it's a really important, it's, for human wildlife conflict, it's really important to engage people that are affected because at the end of the day you want a uh, a win-win solution for both people and wildlife so a lot of people think that the answer to this question is to increase our coexistence with them such as biotour ecotourism biotourism things like that 
How have you found that local populations have been in terms of the response to this? Have they been eager to engage in changing their jobs from farming, from slash and burn agriculture, stuff like this, to ecotourism? And if so, have they been economically fueled or are they more, or have you seen a lot of altruism among them? So for many of these communities, because they are the poorest of the poor, uh, they, you know, it's important to make sure their needs are met. Because if their needs are, basic needs are not met, they're not going to care about conservation. So you want support for conservation. And then that way you want to help build that kind of support by providing people with uh, sources of income, sources of livelihood. Um, and we work with communities that, you know, in, in certain uh, places to help build ventures like ecotourism. For instance, in Thailand, um, our team there has been working with local guides to, because Thailand in Kuiburi National Park, where we work in Southern Thailand, it's one of the best elephant viewing sites in, in Thailand, in the whole of that country. And it's, it's one of our best managed elephant projects also. So because of the conservation efforts, elephants are coming back and people are coming to see them. So we engage communities that may also be impacted by human-elephant conflict that live in the surrounding areas that may be you know, losing income to, to conflict situations. We engage them in ecotourism ventures, help them build up, that, build up those ventures just you know, uh, from the ground up and help them to kind of gain a source of income that way as well. So while it may start off as economic, it may eventually become altruistic is our hope, but you have to give people options to, to become engaged in conservation. Yeah, and I, I would just add, I think the, um, there's obviously not a one size fits all. I think when you look at other parts of the world, working with communities for, around ecotourism is much more effective in parts, it's for example, in Namibia and other parts of Africa. Uh, but some of these places are so remote um, that getting tourists in and out is actually not uh, a viable option, which is why we really think holistically. How do we, uh, you know, ecotourism is one of the solutions, but it's got to be part of a mix because some of these places are just inaccessible. Thinking of two things, use of a drone for imagery or monitoring and also kind of like SMS-based messaging for like the squads that you mentioned mm -hmm. for communicating. So looking two, three, five years out, yeah. what kind of technologies do you guys see prototyping, right. maybe looking to scale up on for your work? Thank you. So when you mentioned SMS, that's a really interesting thing because, again, one, not one size fits all. So in Assam, for instance, we worked with the field teams to find out what their on-the-ground requirements might be. So at, at first we were thinking maybe the alarm, the, the notification could be SMS to notify everyone, then they'll come and respond. But the field team mentioned that many of the people, while they have cell phones, may not be as literate in that area. So the best way to notify them would be an alarm. Whereas somewhere else where people use apps more, or their phone more, maybe literate and more you know, prone to using SMS, that that would be the best option there as an alert system. So it has to be tailored to field conditions. So it is really important that you work very closely with you know on the ground conditions, the field teams, and what's needed in those areas. And for instance, when I also mentioned low cost, if you're developing expensive tools that are you know sent out into the field and they can't maintain it or continue using it because of the expense involved, it's not going to be effective in the long run. The idea is if we want to scale up these kinds of innovations and, and um, kind of technologies, we want to make sure it's affordable for everybody. So this tool that we're talking about also, when our engineer developed it, um, he built it uh, with the idea that each unit would be starting at $50 a pop, which is pretty cheap compared to how, a lot of how, how much many, many technologies cost. 
and down the road, maybe the, the software would be open source. That way other people can work on developing it and improving it and making it even less, you know, uh, more cost effective down the road. So that's the idea that if you're thinking of developing it, you're thinking of how you can scale them up as well. So it's just not just a one-time thing you test out, okay, it works, but then if it's not sustainable, there's no use down the road. So that's how, that's how we're envisioning how we move forward with different types of technology as they're you know, coming up. And we're, we're keeping an eye on what, what is being developed out there and kind of monitoring and making, making sure we um, kind of adapt those for our needs and use them to the best, uh, you know, the best way they were intended to be used. So thank you for your question. I would just say that it, the use of technology is, is some of the most exciting stuff that's happening now in conservation, and it's everything from unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, to uh, you know, uh, infrared camera trapping, where um, teams on the ground can identify poachers based on heat signatures. They can tell if it's an animal versus a human being, and if it's a human being in an area where an animal's, uh, where they're not supposed to be, then the, the teams can go out and, and deal with that. Um, so I would just add that it is, it, it's amazing what is possible today um, that wasn't possible even five or ten years ago. And to Nalanga's point, it's really now about how do you identify those solutions that can be scaled. Um, but we're testing tons of new innovations all the time, and it is incredibly exciting work. How can we best inspire our young people here to get involved with World Wildlife Fund, and what are some things that they can do to help elephants and orangutans and these species abroad? Steve, would you like to take that one? <laughs> Um, so, um, oh God, there's so many ways. So obviously we, um, you know, talking to kids about the importance of nature and conservation, it's part of school curriculums and things like that. We do a lot of uh, talks at schools uh, as a way to engage kids, but there's a lot of great tools now online where they can engage. Uh, at, for WF, we have something called Panda Nation where kids can go online and learn about um, different animals they love, but then also um, it get engaged in sort of uh, local fundraisers and things like that. Um, but we also just launched as part of the Apps for Earth um, a new app called WF Together. It's actually a, it's an app that's been updated and now available on all iPads and iPhones. Um, but that is, if you see it, um, it's actually, I think there's samples of it on a lot of the um, computers in the store here. Uh, that app is an amazing way to get kids involved. I, I have three kids of my own. Uh, they go in there, they learn about gorillas and orangutans and elephants and rhinos, and they are, uh, they're just immediately inspired, um, and then there are ways for them to take action. So I think it's, it's talking to our kids about the importance of nature. Um, I think for me too, with my own kids, it's talking to them about um, the fact that nature is not something separate from us, but something that we need to survive. Uh, talk about where water comes from, uh, you know, that food doesn't just show up in the, in the supermarket, it's grown somewhere. And so just um, all of those kind of initiatives that are out there, I think are um, contributing. I have a lot of hope though, because my kids are much more aware of uh, the environment and nature and how it affects their lives than I was at their age. So I think there's a lot of hope there. Hi. Um, Hi. I just wanted to say that you're like the coolest person ever because oh I, my gosh. I, I'm I studying. Agree. Thank I'm, you. Thank you. I'm studying to be a conservation biologist, so I was like, oh, I got to go awesome. to this. That's yeah. Anyway, the question is, um, is, is more regarding tigers in yeah. Russia mm -hmm. specifically, but um, does the would the captive breeding and like release program have any effect in that? Because I know that like the Bronx Zoo has a big program with. Um, the toads and releasing them in Tanzania. So I didn't know if that would be something you would consider to do with rhinos or tigers or. So I think something I forgot to mention earlier also when I'm talking about numbers increasing, 
uh, we have some hope. You know, places like Cambodia, they were tigers were declared functionally extinct. Uh, so as part of our next steps there, we've been working to make sure we bring tigers back to where we work in the Eastern Plains landscape of Cambodia. So what we've been doing in the, uh, to get to that point is making sure prey species are recovering. Because for many years there was political unrest and you know many of these species were poached out. And so we've been working to make sure that these species are coming back, I increasing and um, strengthening law enforcement there, and making sure that if tigers come back that they're protected. And so good news, very recently, just a couple of weeks ago, the, Myanmar, uh, the Cambodian government signed into action the, their tiger action plan. That means we're one step closer to bringing tigers uh, back to Cambodia. So we can do things like that by the idea is that we probably bring them from a country like India um, and then reintroduce them into Cambodia. So there are, there are ways that we do that, but the whole captive tiger situation is a little more complex. I think Steve can speak to that a little bit more as well. Um, but uh, it, it's hopeful that we can bring these populations back to places where they used to exist, just like the rhinos, you know? I mean, it takes a lot of stage setting. Even the rhinos, to bring a rhino back, you have to do so many assessments in the places where they need to be brought back to. You know, you have to do habitat assessments, security assessments, community assessments. You can't just bring a rhino and drop it there and expect that it's gonna be safe. You have to, to improve the capacity of the rangers there in that area to protect that rhino when it's there. So there's a lot that needs to be done. So the same way for tigers, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done to even bring tigers back uh, to where they used to be. Um, and there's a lot that needs to be done to, to continue protecting the, the populations that are still out there. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us.